This episode is sponsored by a patron of the Met Orchestra Musicians. Since the shuttering of the Metropolitan Opera in New York for public health concerns, Met Orchestra Musicians has remained committed to connecting its global audience through music. They firmly believe that music and art offer solace, inspiration, and an affirmation of our humanity. Visit metorchestramusicians.org to offer support. On this episode, we have Beth Roberts. After starting her career in real estate law in New York City, Beth made her way to Los Angeles and began working in entertainment. She joined NBC Universal and stayed with them for over two decades in a number of leadership positions, particularly on the cable side of their businesses. She's most recently been involved in adapting podcasts into scripted cable shows. She left NBC Universal about a year ago and has launched a podcast of her own called Broadsided. She's a wine enthusiast and enjoys mountain climbing, having scaled Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania. Beth, thank you so much for being on our show. Asim, thank you for having me. That's really great. You've had such a distinguished career and um, such great personal interests as well that have strong overlap with my own personal interests. So this is going to be a very fun conversation. Um, Can't wait. Let's get into it. Yes, let's do that. Um, let's start with uh, the, the background. Uh, you shared with me that um, um, you moved uh, uh, a few different spots, but uh, all in the Midwest. Is that, do I have that right? Primarily, yes. I was born in Philadelphia, but was raised primarily in Kansas City, Kansas, and Indianapolis, Indiana. Gotcha. And then uh, made your way back east to go to Vassar for undergrad. Yes. Yeah, and you studied political science there. Did you have a sense before you started at Vassar that law might be your calling? No, uh, actually not at all. I don't think I thought of careers at all before I went to college. I think I thought mostly about uh, boys and uh, tennis and uh, some of the activities at school. But when I got to Vassar, it was a liberal arts college. And I think coming out of a liberal arts college, Uh, I felt as though I needed more preparation if I wanted to get into a career. And most of the people from the college went either to business school or to law school. And my um, senior year, my junior or senior year of college, I took a course called Women in the Law. And it really fascinated me. And that's what tipped the scale for me towards law school. Nice, well, that's great. You mentioned tennis. Did you play tennis at Vassar? I did not play tennis at Vassar. I played tennis in high school and I got into, my real passion was gymnastics, which I uh, didn't get into until 11th grade, which means I would have been 16, which is about the retirement age for most professional gymnasts. So I was very passionate about it, but I got into it very late and uh, uh, I didn't pursue either tennis or gymnastics in college. What sparked the passion for gymnastics? That is a great question. And I've actually never really thought about it. I actually, my sophomore year, I was a manager for the team. So sort of like one of those people who would help with the equipment and be part of the organization and the admin for the team. And I just loved the energy of it. And I was always very athletic as a kid. And so I just loved the energy of it. And um, the various, you know, there's so many different ways that you can p- compete, Florex, the horse, the unevens, you know. So there were so many different things that you could do as an athlete uh, that it just it spoke to me on some level. And I still have, back in the day, they, you know, people will, when you compete at events, people will take pictures of you and then try to sell them. They'll send you the proof and then try to sell you the big picture. 
And at one event, I have three little proofs from me doing the uneven parallel bars. It was so great. I never bought the pictures, but I still to this day have these little proofs in my important papers file. That's great. Wow, that, that did really leave an impression. Very nice. Yeah. So um, you chose uh, BU, Boston University for law school. Mm -hmm. um, and um, after you graduated, you worked for a firm in New York for uh, a, a few years, uh, real estate oriented. Yeah. Was that your specialty? Did you have a sense for that in law school that you want to go? Yeah, and in law school, I had taken a couple of real estate courses, and I just liked land and building and everything around you. And so, yes, I got into real estate, and um, and I loved doing real estate in New York City, actually, because I always felt as though yeah, real estate, you know, it was part of the fabric of society around you if you lived in New York. You know, as a lawyer, you were working on loans to acquire or sell that particular commercial building you might represent landlords and so you would draft the tenant lease for the different corporate clients that would lease you know floors of the building you would do um oh we did uh, we represented developers who in uh in the transfer of air rights so all those needle buildings that you see one of the partners in my law firm came up with the concept of a short little building which was zoned to be higher could sell that portion of their zone that they didn't use with their building to an adjacent property. And that adjacent property could cobble together all those air rights from different buildings and create those big, neat, uh, huge super scrapers that you see in New York City. So it was really fun. I mean, I would drive around or drive, I would walk around the city uh, or be taxied around the city and at every building that you looked at there would be some connection I would have had through work and I found that really exciting. Wow that's fantastic. Um, you made a transition then to LA and um, I think you started out at uh, William Morris before yeah. Uh, yeah. to United Paramount for, for three years as in-house counsel. So was there something personal bringing you to LA? Well, um, I like to say that I was, I, I did love commercial real estate law, but I was a little bit of Goldilocks. I went, I was at three different firms when I was in New York, okay. uh, constantly looking for just the right fit and yeah. I never found it. Okay. So I, um, I had taken, I was always taking, doing extra things, extracurriculars, and I had taken a screenwriting course actually mm. in New York, probably at the new school or the learning yeah. annex or something like that. Yeah. And I loved it. So since I was dissatisfied with my job and I was excited about screenwriting, um, I did what anyone would do is I quit my job and I traveled around the world for a year. Right. So <laughs> I backpacked solo around the world because I felt really before I wanted to make a change in my life, I felt as though I hadn't really had any true life experiences because yeah. I'd gone straight from high school to college to law school to New York and working. And I'd never really taken that time off that a lot of people uh, wisely take. No. So I did take a year and I traveled by myself around the world. And then by the time I'd done that, I felt like I could do anything, right? Yeah. So yeah. when I returned to New York, I packed up and I moved out to California to become a famous screenwriter. <laughs> and then after two years of not really getting anywhere, uh, I did take that job at William Morris okay. as an assistant, actually. Um, a friend of mine had said, you don't, you, know, you don't know what you want to do, but you can get a great overview at an agency. If you get a job there, 
you'll be exposed to all the different aspects of the entertainment industry, whether it's television or movies or music and what kinds of jobs you might want, whether it's in-house or an agency or, you know, a law firm. And so uh, she said it would be more like getting my um, master's degree in entertainment. Okay. And so I did my master's degree at entertainment at William Morris Agency <laughs> okay. for about a year and a half. Um, and the idea of going to a law firm that had an entertainment practice wasn't appealing to you? No, you know, that's funny because, because I'd had my Goldilocks experience yeah. in a law firm. I didn't really feel that that was the environment I wanted to be in. I felt as though um, at that time, I felt as though I really wanted to understand businesses better and work right. with the business. Right, right. Well, it, it worked brilliantly as we're about to uh, chat about. Um, going back to your trip, uh, I know you hit some amazing spots around the world. We've talked about New Zealand, Australia, Southeast Asia, India. Um, any memorable, I mean, there, I'm sure you have many memorable anecdotes, but uh, any particular moments that you hold on to or cherish or felt like turning points for you or significant points of reflection? You know, I had a really interesting time in uh, Indonesia in Bali. Okay. And it was more of a sort of a life lesson might be aggrandizing it, but it was, it was educational for me. So I wanted to get this batik print and uh, which I'm looking at right now, actually. Oh, I wanted okay. to get this batik print. And, um, but, you know, I was a lawyer and I wanted to make sure I had a fair price. And in Indonesia, they, they haggle, right? They barter, they back and forth. And, and, uh, and you don't just pay a firm price. And so I wanted to make sure that I wasn't taken advantage of. So I found the print and it's very important to know whether you're getting an original or you're getting a copy because that'll influence the price, right? And so I found the print that I wanted and of course they told me it was an original. So I went around to a number of different shops and I saw the print, so I knew it was a print and not an original. And then I asked them what they were selling for and I sort of got a range. And so I went back to the shop where I went, where I started and I told them the right price you know, let's call it 25 cents. And right. of course they right. said, $4. I said, 25 cents. And they said, 350. And I said, 25 cents. And they said, come on, $3. And I said, 25 cents. Well, at the end of the day, I got the petite for 25 cents. But, <laughs> but as I left the store, I realized I had, it was such a tragic negotiation for the shopkeeper. Yeah. Because that, they don't, America, in America, you have prices, yeah. but in Indonesia, you, you haggle. Yeah. And so part of the sport for the shopkeeper is the haggling. Part yeah. of the culture for the shopkeeper is the haggling. And so for me to come in and just, you know, bottom line him, yeah, he gave it to me for the price and that was the right price, but he would have had a lot more fun if I had said a penny, <laughs> right. he said $3 and we'd met at the right number. And so I really took away, I, I felt that very quickly after the experience. And I really took away, you know, you really need to observe. And when you go to different cultures, you need to understand different mm -hmm. cultures. And when you're negotiating, you really want to size up what the other side is, what their expectations are. And you need to, you know, when it's appropriate, adapt your style to the style across the table. Wow, phenomenal. That's a great lesson to learn. And uh, it certainly served you well. I mean, you've done a significant amount of negotiating in your career. 
Yes. <laughs> so um, tell us about the move from United Paramount to NBC Universal, where you spent two decades. Right. So I loved my experience at UPN. Um, it was a fledgling network. I was part of the launching team. I was an assistant. I started as an assistant and then was promoted into the position of a business and legal affairs executive. Um, and it was just great because I became, I like to say I became a jack of all trades. Mm. So we didn't have anything. So I had to help work on the Nielsen rating agreement. I had to help create the license agreement for programs. I had to, you know, work on the um, marketing agreement, the rental agreement when we leased the helicopter to fly and shoot the Hollywood sign. I had to, there wasn't a single area of the company that I didn't get involved with. Obviously I was very junior. I had a boss who was really managing everything, but it gave me this great overview of television, of broadcast television. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was there for three years. I learned a little bit about everything and I really loved that. But after three years, I wanted to get more of a deep dive. And I had to, I talked to a lot of friends as people always do to find out about and talk to them about where they worked and what their culture was. Did a lot of business lunches with uh, my peers. And I decided that of all the places people talked about, the two that people seemed the happiest at were NBC and Warner Brothers. And the position opened up at NBC and I went for it and I got it. Fantastic. And then I loved being at NBC because again, it did give me, it had experts. It was a bigger company. It was an established company and it had experts in all those fields that I'd had to dabble in. So I could focus in deep dive in business affairs and negotiation. Yeah, well, and what's phenomenal is that, um, you know, you started out with um, you know, dealing with the agreements and the contracts that you've described, but then you were running P&Ls, you were choosing, um, uh, acquiring content, uh, pilot series, doing all that. That took a little time. That took a little time. <laughs> it wasn't by Tuesday? So <laughs> yes, exactly. So when I went to NBC, uh, I thought it was a big company compared to UPN, uh, but it was a small broadcast network because there were laws in effect that limited uh, networks from owning content. And so without ownership, you don't need distribution. And there are a number of different functions that a, a network, uh, that a studio needs that a network doesn't need. And during that period, those laws went away and those laws were sunsetted. And so NBC started growing and it started creating its own production company. And then once it had a hit and it was paying someone else to distribute it, it realized how much money they would save if they had their own distribution arm. And so they did that. And then NBC got into cable, right. with, uh, Bravo, and then Oxygen, and then NBC acquired Universal, and then we got into movies. So, and then the digital boom happened. And so by the time I left, um, I had a, I had seen a lot of change in the industry, a lot of growth in my company, and I'd worn a number of different hats along the way. Yeah, I mean, throughout your career, you basically had seen the various levels, uh, various areas, uh, broadcast side and the production side. You were on the cable side for for some time, and then towards the, the end, digital, you know, we yeah, put together stuff. one of the first deals where we made eight-minute segments that. Um, aggregated, you could knit together to a two-hour movie, and we launched them on Machinima, which at that time was a digital platform. Um, 
we launched them on Machinima and then we stitched them together and brought and then broadcast them on a sci-fi network in USA simultaneously. So there were a lot of innovative types of um, uh, approaches to the changing media world yeah. that I was able to be involved with and that was really exciting and fun. Yeah. You're, you're a classic what I sometimes call intrapreneur <laughs> in that you know there's a corporate umbrella that you're working within but you are showing the classic skills and, and, and traits of an entrepreneur on the outside starting a business and growing it. Um, it's a unique set of skills that are required to, to do that because managing within that corporate setting has its own challenges. Yes, it does. <laughs> I mean, I ended my career there, so I left about a year ago. The last year I was there, I was in a really fun group, the business development group for the uh, cable group. And the, the thought was, as the linear networks are declining, um, what can we do? How can we look at the demographics of our audience, look out into the digital world, find similar de uh, demographics on an online platform, invest in that online platform, uh, market that online platform to our demographic, and then use our scale to help build that business. And that was really fun. So then I got to be in an established media company and then work with folks looking at different startups and being exposed to the startup world and looking at it. Um, unfortunately, uh, that's not really the direction that established media companies. There's a lot... You, you, re you can read a lot of books about how it's really, really difficult for established media companies to actually disrupt their business. Right. So a lot of them will pay lip service to it and, and dabble in it. But when you really need to make the kinds of investments and, and change up your revenue stream and your year over year growth that's expected by Wall Street in order to pursue that disruption, uh, a lot of companies find it difficult to uh, pulled the trigger. And I would see NBC Universal, unfortunately, as one of those companies. Gotcha. Um, you can saw the people always look at Bob Iger and ABC and they really, he really orchestrated a great disruption for ABC and took them that Leviathan and was able to turn it slowly in a new direction and head off. So, but it was a great run. I got to say, I, I mean, I feel very fortunate for the very, for the very many businesses that I was able to be exposed to through my time at the company, the changing leadership, um, even though I was there so long, the leadership changed a lot. So there were cultural, cultural changes that I was able to experience. And so it was, um, it was a great ride. Yeah, yeah. Well, to, to dive into it a little bit more, there was one key inflection point in 2011 when you were promoted to COO of Universal Content Productions. And at the time, um, the chairman of NBCU Cable Entertainment, Bonnie Hammer, said, you've always struck a perfect balance between strategic vision and fiscal discipline. Yes. Uh, yes, uh Heavy emphasis on fiscal uh, discipline, I'm sure. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that so 2011, if you think about it, that was right at the time where there was the explosion of content. And it actually was called Universal Cable Productions, I believe. Oh, uh, okay, because sorry. Because Jeff Zucker was very, we already, had, uh, MB, we already had a television studio for the broadcast network. Okay. And so we wanted to make sure there wasn't confusion between the broadcast studio uh, and the mm -hmm. cable studio. 
at the broadcast studio might have been Universal Television. It went through a number of iterations. I'm not sure what it was then exactly, but um, so there was this explosion of content because there were so many different cable networks, and traditionally they had licensed content from the broadcast networks. Right. And as more as as cable as more and more cable networks came out and the competition got greater, that wasn't enough to have other people's repeats. You had to invest in original content. And so um, uh, when we were doing that as with broadcast and cable separate and this broadcast studio doing business for us, what we discovered was our programming when we started out, now cable content is equally as, the production value is equally as, uh, as, as good as broadcast or as streamers in some cases. Hmm. Um, but at that time, you know, it was a significantly less expensive. There were fewer scenes. There was, uh, the production value just wasn't as, as high, high end. And so, our revenue wasn't as high end. Hmm. And so, the, uh, priority really went with our studio from broadcast to cable sure. cable being much later than broadcast in gotcha. the hierarchy of attention uh, gotcha. anyway so bonnie got her own studio and so when bonnie got her own studio we really started to build it and at first there were five team leaders and then it went down to three and then ultimately uh jeff wachtel moved over from running usa to running the ucp but it was this great period of growth and it was really exciting for us because we moved up to Canada. We didn't move up to Canada, but we uh, produced a lot of our productions up in Canada because you could take advantage of both. There was a, uh, a tax benefit and then there was also the exchange rate benefit. So we produced up there. We really built, helped build out a lot of the production facilities and a lot of the experience up in Canada because of the number of programmings that we were, we were producing. So that was very exciting. At one point we were pitching, I was pitching with the CFO to the CEO to try to get them to buy a studio up there so we would have some real estate that we own so that we could lease it out to others. And so there was just a lot going on that made it a very, very exciting time. Yeah. And of course, everyone will tell you that as John Landgraf is famously quoted for saying that there was too much content. Uh, but th these were the days when everyone was starting to build it and the quality was getting greater and the, it was just a very exciting time. Yeah. And you mentioned USA Networks, like uh, other properties like were like Sci-Fi and E. Yeah. So, I mean, I think uh, Bonnie had... Bonnie's portfolio was something like over $5 billion. I mean, it's quoted. She's... Uh, on the power list of fortune you know a fortune magazine and forbes and everything and they quote what it is but something like over five billion dollars in gross revenues so she had a really big portfolio mm -hmm. and it consisted of usa network and bravo were the two um jewels in the crown and then also sci-fi um i'm trying to remember because at one point it was uh g4 and e and style Right. And then Style became Esquire. Um, did I say Oxygen? Because not I yet. There we go, Oxygen. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they were, and then so there were just there were a number of different. Now, as there was a proliferation of content and a proliferation of cable networks, we ultimately it became and linear was being um, linear was declining in profitability 
as the new streamers were coming up, many of those networks were consolidated. And so I think now there's like four or five. Right. But, um, but at the time it was very robust. And again, it was very exciting because we were constantly rebranding the networks to, you know, create, uh, to, to upgrade their profile and upgrade their content. And it was just a really fun time to be nice. in the business. And was this the time period where you uh, nearly tripled your P&L your first three years? Yes, that's when we ran the UCP. So right. UCP started out very fledgling and we were able to, uh, we were able to grow very, very quickly. And it really worked because we worked hand in hand with our network partners. Now we, we would produce for any distributor, uh, linear distributor, but we worked very much hand in hand with USA and sci-fi on our content. And then we ended up creating a reality division. And so that reality division also worked with um, uh, Bravo and Oxygen, which didn't have scripted content. But when Bravo did uh, take a foray into scripted content, we were there to produce it for them. So uh, yeah, so that was a, it was a great boom of growth. And it really supported Bonnie's vision of needing her own studio because once she had her own studio, she was able to grow it exponentially. Um, her team was able to grow it exponentially for her, but it was with her support that we were really able to build something that today I think is competitive with all of the major studios. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, you mentioned Bonnie being named to, to lists. Um, you've been named to a series of lists as well. Um, a number of top 100 lists, including the Hollywood Reporter, their list of influential executives. Um, you've been named to the Women in Entertainment Power 100 and, and Variety's exclusive Power of Women lists as well. So uh, you've gotten the accolades and recognition, which is wonderful to hear and see. Well, the lists are only as good as the paper they're written on. I think. <laughs> but, uh, oh, that's a lot of humility, Beth. <laughs> well, for the thousands who never make it on the list, uh, they're looking up at you. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you, uh, Beth, it, it feels like this was around the time when uh, your husband Warren was, was diagnosed. Do I have that accurate? Um, Warren was diagnosed in 2010 with okay. tonsil cancer. Okay. Um, so yeah, it, was, it was prior to your, your promotion. Um, how did that uh, impact um, your life, your career, the things you were doing? If you wouldn't mind sharing that with us. No, not at all. Um, well, uh, obviously it's very consuming when your spouse is sick and needs your help and your care. Um, the first six months of treatment were uh, pretty grueling in many ways, um, but we were able to get through it. Um, and then he was good for two or three years and then he had some recurrences. And then from that point on, his health started failing as a result of many of the treatments. And uh, I actually had one of the the, his oncologist, when I was saying to him, I didn't know that this was going to have this effect, this long-term effect, that this uh, degradation. And he said, well, we didn't think he would live this long. So it became a job. But, you know, it's probably no different. So I don't have children. 
And while obviously it's psychologically taxing to go through illness with your spouse, it's no different from a lot of people who have children, who have special needs children, who have family members that they need to take care of. I mean, I think you figure out a way to compartmentalize your life that enables you to give as much as you can at the workplace, while at the same time trying to give as much as you can to your personal life and manage your home life. And so, um, so yeah, so, and I think that uh, that's, a, that's a challenge that faces many people. And if you're lucky and good at compartmentalizing like I am, um, you can find a way to make it work for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I certainly identified with what you've just shared, Beth. Uh, I've told you about uh, the experience with my son and his two bone marrow transplants to address his uh, aplastic anemia. And so, uh, yeah, it uh, it becomes consuming in that way. And you do have to devote uh, time towards it and you have to compartmentalize. It's, it's really the only way to, to do it. Um, one thing that I've always been impressed with as you've shared this story with me in the past is that the caretaker takes on a really burdensome role. And, and I mean, it's done with love, uh, of course, but um, you've done a particularly good job of um, making sure that you could be there in the best possible way for Warren. And, and I wondered if you could share that because I think I found that really inspirational. I wish I had done a better job of that myself. Um, and, and I really took a lot of great inspiration from you. So. Um, Tell us about, and it also speaks volumes about your relationship with Warren, and, and I'm sure he was encouraging you and insisting that you do some of these things. But, um, you know, at the end, it made you more available for him. Um, so tell us about some of those experiences that you had. Um, well, uh, so while I was, you know, when you become a caregiver, it it, it is fairly consuming. And there did become a period when I couldn't do it alone. Uh, Warren actually, uh, one of the um, one of the ramifications of his treatment was that he had very enhanced what they call chemo brain. So not really sure what it was, but it, you know, mild cognitive impairment, early onset dementia. So he started, it wasn't safe for him to be at home alone. So, you know, at first I kind of put cameras in the house and would watch from work. And then ultimately he ended up uh, needing a caregiver and 24 hour, and then ultimately 24 hour care. Mm -hmm. So, and the 24 hour care really came around so that I could have a life. Mm -hmm. And I was very conscious of wanting to take care of my husband, but also not wanting to limit my life entirely. And so I developed a couple of hobbies as a way to keep myself learning, to keep my life full and have it not just be work and caretaking. So um, the first hobby I uh, undertook was winemaking, home winemaking. Um, I had gone to like a high, one of the Kansas high school reunions and these people were talking about how they made wine. And I was like, wait, what? You can make wine at home? Like just an individual? You don't need a whole winery? Oh yeah, you can get these kids. And so I, when I got back to Los Angeles, I explored it. I found a home wine making group that's out in Woodland Hills. I ordered some kits. I started making wine. And of course, the thing about wine is you ferment the grapes and then you have to wait a year <laughs> until. So it's kind of like work, 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 work for two weeks. And I mean, uh, eight weeks, two months. 
And then you have to wait and twiddle your thumbs while it's bottled and you're waiting for it to age sufficiently. And the kits were meant to be drunk young. So you really only had to wait six months to a year. So I did that for a couple of years, but I didn't love the kits. Although I would do a kit every month so I could keep trying, so I could keep learning and playing with the chemicals and the you know reactions and trying to blend and try different things. Um, and then two years ago, I uh, decided to make wine from grapes. So for the last two harvests now, I have gone to a custom crush up in Camarillo and I've bought grapes to make uh, Chardonnay, Cabernet. Amazing. I've got my own oak barrel for my Chardonnay. So I've really, um, I collected, I, I uh, dumpster dived bottles at work. You know, I'd ask people to bring in their empty wine bottles so I could do it. And so now I'm done dumpster diving. I have a sufficient number of bottles. I've even bought some and uh, that's been a fun hobby. Excellent. That's really great. One that has nice dividends. Ones that has nice dividends. <laughs> and then the other thing I did is I looked out at my, um, I had a bucket list, obviously. I, I told you I traveled around the world, but when I traveled around the world, I was supposed to meet friends in Tanzania and hike Mount Kilimanjaro with them. And because I got stuck in India, I couldn't get a flight out. I missed it. And of course they were working. So they were on a very regimented schedule. So I missed uh, hooking up with them and, and climbing it. So that's always been a bucket list item. And so uh, I hike regularly. I've hiked for like eight years with a friend in Fryman Canyon every, every morning or a couple times a week. We do it. We advance to every morning. And so I decided to take it one step further and plan a trip to hike Mount Kilimanjaro. And so I gave myself a year to train for it. Mm. And I, you know, trained at a lot of the mountains in um, California. I did a 14-year in, uh, in near Breckenridge, Mount Democrat, as my first one, summiting that. And then I summited Baldy, San Jacinto, and Palm Springs, uh, uh, Mount Whitney. Well, I didn't summit Mount Whitney. I only got to 12.5, but uh, I got close. I mean, that's a long slog. He started yeah. 8,500 feet. It takes a long time. Um, and a number of others. So, uh, yeah. And so then in February of 2018, I flew out and uh, did an eight day hike up Mount Kilimanjaro, which was a great, great bucket list achievement for me personally, for me. Tell us about what's going through your mind as you are on the summit looking out. Um, I'm only hesitating because uh, I would, well, first of all, there's not a lot of oxygen, so you don't have a lot of clarity, but I had brought my brother, my older brother, one of my older brothers, who is uh, eight years older than I had, had eight years earlier summited Mount Kilimanjaro himself. Oh, wow. And a cousin of mine had summited Mount Kilimanjaro. And wow. now I was going to. So I so I decided to take some of my father's and mother's ashes. My parents were both passed away. Oh. And spread them on the summit of Mount Kilimanjaro since three, you know, two of his six kids had done it and this other cousin was his brother's kid. And so I was like, why don't I well, that would sort of be meaningful and that would help me get to the top if my goal was to uh, spread those ashes. <laughs> I had them double bagged in a plastic bag because I was afraid it would spill or something. And so Ziploc, double Ziploc. And I got to the summit and I was very focused on, I looked at the sunrise, but then I was very focused on spreading these ashes. And so I asked my uh, Sherpa to, or my, um, I don't think it's called Sherpa. 
<laughs> guide. I asked my guide to <laughs> take to photograph me with my phone to take a video while I spread the ashes. And so, but I'm kind of shaking and I'm trying to do it so nobody can see and I don't have a lot of oxygen in my head, so I'm not thinking clearly. And so I open the bag and I'm like shaking it and nothing's coming out because I've double bagged it. So, like, oh. so then I try to open and I can't open it, and then I rip it and then I just throw it oh. and of course I didn't you know lick my finger and test the wind direction first so I throw it and all of a sudden I hear behind me oh my god what was that was that ashes and I turned around and there's this cute blonde girl who'd been hiking up with her friends and she had ashes and I was like yeah I'm sorry I'm sorry and I walked away <laughs> and uh, so uh, when you see the pictures of me up on Mount Kilimanjaro, if you look closely, I'm at the summit with the guides around me. And if you look closely, you can see my mom and dad on my coat. <laughs> <laughs> well, it wouldn't have happened as poetically any other way. And so I think that's a beautiful story and I'm glad you shared it. That's very touching. <laughs> yeah. In, in what year did uh, your parents pass? Or which years? So my dad uh, passed in 2008. Okay. Um, uh, he suffered from Alzheimer's actually. And, uh, and then my mom passed in 2013 and she suffered from something called PLS, which is kind of like a slow moving version of ALS. So, oh, wow. okay. And her last couple of years, actually for, after my dad passed, I wasn't really comfortable with the place she was. So I actually ended up just by happenstance uh, buying the house next door when it became available and I moved my mom in there and uh, so I was able to take care of her the last four years with 24-hour care and what was great about that actually is I was just a joke if you had the parents you got the siblings visiting so during those four years I have five brothers and sisters you know they were constantly coming and going cousins would come to see my mom and so it really brought our family uh, closer together it was really nice that's really fantastic. I love that. Um, are you still in close touch with your siblings? Yes. Uh, during this pandemic, we have done a weekly Zoom call. Wow. Impressive. Yes. Yes. So That's we're great. all over the place. I have a brother uh, north of Boston. I have a brother north of New York City. I have a sister up uh, near the San Juan Islands in Washington State. And I have a brother here in Los Angeles. And then I also have a sister in Sydney, Australia. Okay. And so, um, yeah. So coming together every week and, you know, sharing and then nieces and nephews have joined and it's, a, it's been a great way to stay in touch. Um, now that things are opening up more uh, a little bit in various, well, every day is different, right? Yeah, that's right. In the last couple of weeks, things were opening up right. a little bit more. And so we were kind of pushing it later. So some people could get more sunshine and then we're switching days because some people had, you know, events or whatever but uh I, it looks like with most recent events uh we'll be back to every week because yes yeah, yeah yeah that yeah, seems like where we're yeah. heading yeah um you actually answered a, a question that i was going to ask you uh when you shared about your father and his having alzheimer's because um you're a founding member of the women against alzheimer's network and yes. so really That's driven right. by your what your father went through right right yeah, that's active? an organization that was founded by uh, Trish and George Fradenberg out of Washington, D.C., and really focused more on policy 
and changing policy and um, and being in DC and uh, and um, you know working again fundraising fundraising is very important research is very important but policies towards how the funding the national funding is uh, attributed or allocated and that's really the push of that organization. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, you've been active in a few other groups. You, um, uh, the Board of Governors for the Hollywood Radio and Television Society. Are you still sure. active with them? Uh, no, I'm not active with them. That that tends to rotate. It's a couple of years, so people tend to rotate through. So I did my stint, and I enjoyed it. Um, but uh, now I watch from afar. Gotcha. And then you were also involved with the. Uh, uh, on the professional advisory committee of the motion picture and television fund. Right. They had a, um, they no longer have that committee. They had that committee for a handful of years and they were trying to bring more television people in. They had a lot of feature connections as you might imagine. And so, yeah, so I came into that committee and, and that's, uh, that's such a great organization. And, uh, that created, um, that was a great opportunity for me as I was prepping and going towards uh, the issues that I ultimately faced with my husband. That wasn't the intent of joining, um, but uh, one of the side benefits was that I was very close with the social worker there. And then I was brought in, they, I had a palliative care team for my husband there. And uh, they've been very supportive to me during this period now since my husband passed. Okay, that's good to hear. Yeah. yeah. Um, on your LinkedIn profile, on the header, you talk about being a corporate politics navigator. <laughs> and I want to tie that because it feels like there's a, a, some insight there that's informing your current activity as a co-host on a podcast called Broadsided. Right. <laughs> and so um, I'm sure there must be some, some anecdotes. And I'm wondering, is there anything you could share with us with respect to that, uh, being a corporate politics navigator? Yes. Well, uh, I say that because I think anyone who's worked at a company for over 20 years um, is a corporate politics navigator, right? Absolutely. If you're going to be in a big company, you really have to know how to play well with other children. Hmm. And you have to constantly assess sort of the power shifts that happen as you know it, it, certainly in the case of my company is there were acquisitions there were management changes there a lot of manage, different management changes and a lot of different acquisitions and I think you need to um, assess that you need to constantly be aware of what the culture in the corporation is and how you fit into it and be aware of how you want to fit into it. And so, um, but you know, not everybody's perfect and you can't, you can't um, foresee every change, every change. And I did leave as a result of restructure, quite honestly. Um, and my friend Christine and I were talking about it and she, we were laughing, we were laughing probably because we were drinking wine otherwise we would have been crying no um so we were we were talking about how you know it's so funny with uh, particularly women and senior women you do get into the, you get lulled into this sense of security where you've done your job a long time you've been at the company a long time you've got a lot of good relationships and you think your merit stands on its own and that things will just come to you and people will acknowledge you. And then usually there's some sidestep that you didn't see coming your way, some bump in the road, and then boom, you're broadsided. 
And I think it happens more to women than to men, although it certainly happens to, to everyone. But uh, women tend to think that if they just keep their head down and do their job well and are good at their job, that they'll, that they'll continue to um, rise through the ranks. And it's not always true. So Christine and I thought that, uh, you know, so when I came to Hollywood, I thought I was going to write my, uh, a famous screenplay. Now I think everyone in Hollywood thinks they're going to create a very profitable podcast. So I've transitioned from thinking I'm going to write a famous screenplay to thinking I'm going to create a traditional uh, uh, successful podcast. So Christine and I decided I had been working with all these startups and I had been working with a number of podcast startups in order to uh, acquire IP rights to the extent even the podcast became uh, interesting, we could then adapt them for television. So we did that with Doc, uh, Dirty John. We did that with Dr. Death. So there were a number of different projects that we had worked on. So I was familiar with the podcast area. And so when Christine came to me, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, we could develop something and it would be really interesting. And if it could be instructional and if it could help people then, um, you know, navigate their own corporate waters, uh, why wouldn't we offer that? And it also was at the time of you know, um, at the very beginning, you know, it was kind of a year or so into me too. And there was a lot of, well, I don't even know if I can take somebody out to dinner that I work with. And I thought, you know, it would be nice to give people rules of the road as well. So you can give people some confidence as to what is okay and what isn't okay by sharing experiences. So it's not just for women. Um, it's also, uh, and it's not just for senior women and it's not, so it could be for men, it can be for junior women. It can just be, it can be for anybody. It's lessons learned in, in corporate life in America. Oh, that's really great. Um, are you familiar with a documentary called Bias? No, I'm not. Tell me about it. I recently saw a screener for it and uh although the film's been out for a year or two um and uh it was through the national venture capital association of which i guess i'm still a member um and so they were talking about um bias towards uh, women and minorities especially in venture capital um and it's actually it's an amazing uh, documentary the director and producer i, I think her first name is, is robin i want to say robin hauser uh, i'll get you details on it um, but it, it just talks about how pervasive the um, the bias is and, and how it actually um, women and minority men are kind of in a similar position where uh, there were so many anecdotes of how sitting in a board meeting and, and the sole woman director would make a, con a, a suggestion um, and then it would be polite nodding at the heads and then the business would proceed and then you know, 15 minutes later, a white male would make the same suggestion yes. and everyone's like, I second that. That's a great, great idea. idea. Let's yeah. go for yeah. it. That's a very, <laughs> that's a very well-known phenomenon that's commented on frequently. So, yeah. Um, yeah. But it, 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 I'll share that with you. I'll see if I can get that link for you because uh, it just is very interesting. And, and uh, I, awareness is really what's going to help move away from some of those biases. And I think it's a great show that you're doing and I think it's so important. I love the orientation around also sort of uh, rules of the road, think ways to really approach this that um, can be thoughtful and insightful. Right. Um, we had a guest on the show who um, 
uh, he he made this brilliant comment. He, he asked somebody, uh, uh, like, as a male, what can I do to to help the feminist cause? So if I were to ask you that question, okay, I'm asking you that question. Right. Uh, what right. can I do as a male to right. help? <laughs> so it's funny because I think it's the same thing that people are asking right now about Black Lives Matter, right? right. And it's not what you do. It's how you listen and how you educate yourself and how you learn and how you accept that there's an issue mm. and that it needs to well be addressed. Said. Well said. Yeah, and uh, your co-host and, and friend Christine and I have had some really meaningful, robust conversation. Minorities need to stand with minorities, but white people need to remember, I mean, historically, if you look at it, you know, back in the early 20th century, when white immigrants were coming in, there was the same distinction among white immigrants, right? Exactly. The Italians, the um, Irish, Irish. That it's, it's, so it just, you know, it, it's almost, it reminds me, uh, and I'm sure people say this, but it reminds me of, you know, the kid who gets, become, is abused by his father, then abuses his son. Yes. And it's, it feels to me as though, you know, uh, immigrants, you know, once they establish their power, then they look for other immigrants to put so down, so just as they were put down. And I feel like absolutely. there's something lacking in our perspective if we allow that to continue. Yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so well said, Beth. That's a brilliant insight. Um, we, yeah, we tend to uh, uh, perpetuate the behavior that was uh, put on us as a means of feeling like we're somehow accomplished or better off now are right. in that master role um it, it's funny what you shared about how like everyone's come from somewhere else i remember growing up and when people would shout at me um go back to your country i would say why don't you go first <laughs> and of course it got a very perplexed response <laughs> and I, I realized yeah who am i dealing with they're not going to understand <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and it's, you know, obviously right now it's, um, we're in an unfortunate part of our history right now where there is a lot of nativism and sort of reaching back and, and wanting the world to be uh, a different time. And, but I think, I, I, I'm hoping that the one great thing that we're going to get from this horrible, horrible president is that he is going to put in stark relief how bad prejudice is and how bad division is and how important it is for all of us to recognize um, that we need to work together, that we need to push for equality, that we need to put understand and recognize systemic racism. So, I mean, he is bringing it in sharp, sharp relief. So what, let's see, I, I like to think there'll be one yeah, no, I agree. And and while it's painful for us to be going through this, it also highlights how necessary the conversation yes. was. It's like, it's illuminating how pervasive this activity was. And I'm just starting to learn about it. So I was just on a call yesterday where I was um, listening to uh, 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 George Gascon talk and he's mm -hmm. in the DA runoff against Jackie Lacey. And, you know, I'm so ignorant. I didn't realize, I didn't pay attention that you know, the, there's a, of course, there's a union that represents the police. Right. And of course, they're very interested in growing their membership and growing their revenue. And, 
They contribute significantly to DA campaigns, so they become very um, intertwined and their interests become aligned. And it's, you know, and I don't, uh, and I don't know anything more. I'm, I'm, I'm not professing to make, to propose any conclusion about that, just that, oh, well, that's something you need to consider too. And that's something you need to understand. And uh, because I, I'm familiar with unions in the entertainment industry and when they get entrenched, there are good things and bad things, right? And so you need to understand both sides of what, you, what you're dealing with, I think. So that's gonna be part of my goal. I mean, certainly at this time, I am looking very much at what we're doing in November and urging as many people as possible to get involved and to make sure they get out and vote. Think about what we can do in swing states and just really try to spend some time putting this country back on track. No, 100%. And uh, I think back to the letter that Aaron Sorkin wrote uh, right after the 2016 election, which was an apology letter to his daughter and said, uh, you know, we fell asleep at the wheel. We won't let that happen again. And so we just have to all remember that and recall that and put ourselves, uh, mobilize uh, into action. Yeah. Um, Beth, as we approach the uh, top of the hour here, um, we want one more personal question. Um, you did some teaching at both UCLA and, and USC. Mm -hmm. um, do you think you might uh, do more of that going forward in addition to the podcasts? Yes, well, uh, possibly, possibly. I mean, I loved, I taught uh, the business of television right. and I, I think I taught at UCLA for six or eight years and then USC a couple of uh, semesters, um, uh, UCLA extension. Uh, and uh, I really enjoyed teaching. It is really fun to get up in front of a class and spout off and people listen to every word. Um, but no, I had a, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, I actually stopped doing it because I was teaching the business of television and television was changing so rapidly. <laughs> I felt like, like whatever I said today was gonna be different Absolutely. tomorrow and it's still sort of on that bullet train going forward sure, sure. but um no i did really enjoy it and i think about um i think about perhaps someday teaching again and it it would be interesting to see where our podcast takes us and what kind of opportunities that provides for us to spread the word uh, in other mediums yeah fantastic excellent thank well, you it's been a very interesting conversation i've had a lot of fun talking to you about well that's myself. great to hear yeah, uh, I've enjoyed it thoroughly as well. And I think um, you know, the incredible accomplishments you've uh, achieved will be inspiration for, for so many. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive in Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.